Uh, so we have our three speakers who are going to speak. Um, it's one presentation. Basically, the structure is that um, they'll speak one after the next, and uh, we'll set some time at the end for question and answers. So if you have a question while they're doing the presentation, please just note it, and uh, we'll take the, the questions at the end. Um, just to tell you more about our speakers, um, uh, Ross Farnabe and uh, Nikara Nehin, um, they were basically both uh, honor students last year at Vets University, um, and this is part of their research for their honors project. And Peter is actually uh, supervising them uh, on this. Uh, they've actually written a paper about what they're going to be presenting about today. So if you have not seen that, uh, just check it on the ASA website or through the app. I'm sure you'll be able to access that. Uh, without wasting any time, I'll basically call the first speaker, who is Peter, who's going to take it, um, yeah, take the presentation through and we'll take the questions at the end. Enjoy. When the FSB surveyed the insurance industry in 2015, over 95% of us were using some form of simplification for the calculation of the risk margin. In his best-selling book, Thinking Fast and Slow, psychologist Daniel Kahneman, winner of the Nobel Prize for Economics in 20, uh, 2002, describes how our brains solve problems and introduces us to a model of a fast brain and a slow brain. The slow brain is hard-working it takes a lot of effort to really get through and get to an answer. The fast system prefers to jump to a conclusion with minimal effort. But uh, in jumping to those conclusions, you use these mental simplifications, which he calls heuristics. Uh, and those heuristics, they ease the cognitive load, which makes sense when you don't think it, that it's worth the effort to do the full calculation. But, Kahneman warns us, those simplifications introduce biases and those biases can lead us to incorrect conclusions. Now, it's our natural tendency to use the fast part of our brain, especially when the cognitive load is quite substantial, and if you don't think it's worth the effort. In a similar way, we apply mathematical shortcuts when the computational requirements are quite substantial. And in the same way as cognitive shortcuts can lead to biases and incorrect conclusions, it's possible for mathematical shortcuts to do the same. Today, we're going to talk a little bit about the most commonly used shortcuts in the life insurance industry, the bias that comes with it, and we're going to give you a very simple, easy to implement tool that you can use when you get back to the office on Monday. It'll help you overcome that bias. Okay, this is the only soft and fluffy thing in the presentation. It's going to be a little bit technical, uh, but not too technical. Um, and we're going to give you something where at the end you'll feel warranted in claiming your CBD points. So, actually let's go back a little bit and just, right, so what are we going to talk about? So I'm going to run you through some background and I'm going to give you the high level messages of the paper. We're assuming, by the way, that none of you have actually read the paper. As somebody who's been to the convention in the past, I know how this works. Nikara is going to explain the way we did all of this work, and she's going to tell you about what it means for annuity providers. Ross is going to explain to you what it means for Credit Life and whole of life insurance products. And then I'm going to come back 
explain our proposed solution, and we'll wrap it up and we'll take questions at the end. So, a little bit of background. Okay, so Solvency 2 was developed in the EU over a considerable period of time, and it was adopted by South Africa. We made a couple of improvements and modifications, made sure it was appropriate for our local market. Big tick there. Sam gave us uh, the balance sheets, and that included the liability component called the risk margin. As I've said, the risk margin calculation can be computationally expensive. And so the regulators allow us to, have some, to use simplifications. In fact, a couple of simplifications are recommended. Those simplifications are fast brain activities that I referred to earlier. And we looked and we said, we think that these need to be tested in a far more slow brain kind of approach. And that's the work that we've done here. So we've looked at things for annuities, credit life, and whole of life assurances. For annuities, the high-level messages coming out, that there is a systemic underestimation of the risk margin. And depending on the nature of your portfolio, it could be up to 25%. The bias gets worth as the outstanding guarantee period on an annuity gets longer. And it gets worse for level benefits as opposed to escalating benefits. It wasn't all doom and gloom. Um, for credit life, things are actually pretty good. So nothing much to worry about there, as long as you're not using the best estimate liability as the driver for how you project the future SCR. Whole of life, found the risk margin simplifications weren't great. And again, there was a tendency to underestimate. It was worse for younger lives and for higher premiums and, and benefit escalation rates. Lastly, for both annuities and whole-of-life assurance, as I said, we're going to talk to you a little bit about what our proposed solution looks like, something that might allow you to get a better estimate for future SCR. And then, as a result of having better estimates for future SCRs, you could use that for business planning or your risk margin calculation. Good afternoon, everyone, and thanks for coming to our presentation. I hope it adds some value in your working lives. So now moving on to our method. I like to refer to it as the Death Star. How did we assemble this? And throughout the presentation, there will be some references to a well-known franchise. So just giving you the heads up. So I'll start off by going over the general overview of our method. So we looked at three products, as Peter has mentioned, annuities, credit life, and whole life assurances. We used the expected cash flow model, as is suggested by Sam. So we calculate the, the bell and the risk margin explicitly and fully as, under, as through the description given to us in SAM. Then we calculated the risk margin under the various simplifications that is allowed in SAM. So under these simplifications, we were allowed to use drivers and a number of drivers were considered. After this, we exposed our results to, to sensitivity testing and sensitivity testing was done both our, on our inputs and on our assumptions. So let's go through some of our model points. So for the annuities, we considered a policyholder age at balance sheet from 65 to 95 years old in five-year intervals. The annuity escalation rates we considered were 0 to 8% in 1% intervals. And the guarantee period remaining was 0 to 10 years in one-year intervals. 
So for our Credit Life products, we considered a policyholder age at balance sheet of 25 to 75 in five-year intervals. The sum assured was 10,000, 100,000 and 2 million. Our original term was two to seven years in one-year intervals, and our duration in force was zero to five years in one-year intervals. Lastly, for our whole life assurances, we assume similar things for our policyholder age at balance sheets for, and for our sum assured at the start of the policy. For our premium and sum assured escalation rates, we considered a zero to 10% in 2% intervals. And lastly, our duration in force, we considered was zero to 35 years in five-year intervals. So what sort of risks did we analyze? For the annuity products, we considered longevity and expense. And for risk products, we considered mortality, expenses, lapses, and cat risk. So our operational risk, we assumed to be the maximum of 30% of our BSER. And all the other risks we assumed were hedgeable, including market risk. So some of the assumptions that we made, um, open to a lot of debate, but for the purposes of the research, we assumed that the mortality went along the SA life table 85 to 90. Our longevity improvement was assumed to be 1%. Our constant force of mortality and a constant force of mortality was assumed throughout the year. Now, moving on to our expense assumption, our renewal expenses was assumed to be 450 per month. Our expense inflation was 5.3% and our interest rate was 8.2%. So moving on to our risk ma margin calculation. This is calculated under a cost of capital approach. Um, this is very common. Cost of capital times the present value of our SERs at each future point in time, discounted using the risk-free interest rates at that point in time. So this moves on to how did we calculate the SCR at each point in time? Now we calculated using it no simplifications, and then we used a couple of simplifications that Sam actually recommends. So if we look at the no simplification version, this involves full and comprehensive calculation for each submodular risk. So the, and then the BSCR is calculated using the prescribed correlation matrix. The operational risk capital is once again 30% of our BSCR. And we calculated these, these different capital requirements for each of our products based on a standalone basis. We did not account for diversification. So this full and comprehensive risk margin calculation is similar to like Darth Vader. It's complex, it's time consuming, and it's a bit messy. So Sam offers some simplifications. So under the level one simplification, we have a proportional approach to calculate each submodular risk capital requirements. So the capital at time T for each submodular risk is equal to a constant proportion of that risk capital at time naught over the driver value at time naught times by that driver value at time T. So we considered a number of drivers and I'll, we'll go through that a bit later on in the slides. But this begs the question of how did we select an optimal driver for each submodular risk? So we based it on three sorts of criteria. The first one being the driver that gives the lowest possible error from the full and comprehensive calculation. And the second one is the lowest variance of errors. And lastly, we examined how this simplification performed as the full and comprehensive risk margin increased. And once again, under all the simplifications, our BSCR was calculated using the correlation matrix 
prescribed, and our BSCR was calculated as 30% of our BSCR. So under the level two simplification, it's very similar to the level one simplification. However, now we estimate the full SCR at time t. So the SCR at time t is equal to that same constant proportion times by that driver value at time t. So what drivers did we use? So we considered four drivers, the first one being the best estimate liability, the next one being the present value of all future expenses, then we considered the bell less expenses, and the last driver was the bell excluding any payments made in the guarantee period. We also exposed our results to sensitivity testing for mortality, longevity, expenses, and interest rate. So I'll give you a couple of seconds just to look at some of the sensitivities we, we tested on our results. Okay, so now what results did we actually get? So for the whole life assurance products, under level one, this graph represents, if you, the 45 degree line represents the full and comprehensive risk margin, and if the level one risk margin had to estimate that accurately. So the 45 degree line represents the true and comprehensive risk margin, and the blue and red values represents the actual level one results. So we can see the level one consistently underestimates the full and comprehensive risk margin. If we look at the longevity risk margin and the expense risk margin and the different drivers applied, we can see that apparently the expense risk reserve offers the best estimates because it has the smallest variance, its lowest error of variance, and it's the closest to zero. However, and I'll, I'll explain more on this later. As the full and comprehensive risk margin increases, the expense reserve actually consistently deteriorates in its results. So therefore, the bell was chosen for the longevity risk margin, and for the expense risk margin, the expense reserve was a pretty good estimator, and it was consistent as the full and comprehensive risk margin increases. Back to my previous point. If we look at this purple line, which represents the expense reserve for the longevity risk margin, we can see that as the full explicit risk margin increases, the expense reserve consistently deteriorates. So just in summary, the longevity risk margin is best estimated using the bell because of the problems I just showed you with the expense reserves. The expense risk margin is best estimated using the expense reserve. Now, overall, the level one consistently underestimates the true risk margin. And if we look at some of the sensitivity testing we applied to key assumptions and parameters, the error actually increases as the guarantee period and policyholder age increases. The error actually decreases for higher escalation rates. Now, if we move on to level two, the expense reserve also superficially appears to be the best estimator, the best driver. However, we, we, we get the same results as level one, where it consistently underperforms. So therefore, the bell is chosen. So this once again shows the problems with the expense risk margin for level two. So overall, the expense reserve, although superficially seems to be the best driver, the bell was chosen. And under the sensitivity testing, similar results to level one was we, we got the same results for the sensitivity testing. So the error actually increases as the guarantee period increases and as policyholder age increases.
However, the error decreases for higher escalation rates. So now if we look at the sensitivity testing we did, the, the most left box and whisker plot represents the base results. And then as we move rightwards, these are the shocks applied to our results. And surprisingly, we can see overall, as the shocks are applied, it's seen superficially that the risk margin calculations actually become better estimators of the true risk margin. But this is untrue because, as we can see, the variance of the results actually increase. So even though it seems to have a lower error as it's closer to zero, it actually increases its error. So a bit counterintuitive, but the level one and level two errors actually improve closer to zero, but the variance increases, which is consistent with how we work out risk. So overall, we can see that for whole life assurances, we don't have good estimators because it consistently underestimates the true risk margin. So don't despair, we have a proposed solution, and more on this later. Okay, so good afternoon everyone. So I'm going through the two risk products that we consider as part of our research. The first product is a whole of life insurance product that we developed to try and be quite similar to the funeral insurance products that are so commonly seen in the South African markets and are sold in South African markets. It's got fixed benefits that's payable on the death of the policyholder. It's got premiums and some assureds that increase at a set rate. We get them together in order just to keep the modeling complexities down. And unlike the annuity products, for these risk products, we actually had to price a premium that had to be held for them in order to calculate a ca an accurate capital margin. For the funeral product or whole life insurance product, we assume 10% of all future premiums are going to go towards the profit for the company. The second risk product we looked at is credit life insurance. These are short-term policies where the benefits on death matches the outstanding balance on a loan that the policyholder has taken out. They are very often seen in markets sold by credit providers, backing up either unsecured lending products or shorter-term asset finance deals such as vehicle finance. Unlike the funeral product, this product was priced with 25% expected premiums going to profit every year. So, because we had now premiums that we can work with, there were now six drivers that we could look at for the risk products. These six drivers were the best estimate liability, present value of premiums, present value of future benefits payable, the expense reserve or present value of future expenses payable, the death outgo that is expected in the next month of the policy, as well as the minimum of the best estimate liability and zero. So, just some provisional results that we got from this. The first is to not use the best estimate liability as a driver. As you can see in the graphs, for the whole life insurance product, it just does not work, categorically. And for the credit life product, it still doesn't work, even though the credit life insurance product has a reserve that is strictly negative and never goes positive, unlike the whole life insurance product. So, if we dig a little bit deeper into these results, we'll start with the credit life insurance. So, for level one for the credit life insurance, we use the present value of death outgo to model the mortality risk, the expense reserve to model the expense risk, the present value of future premiums received to model the lapse down and life catastrophe risk, as well as the minimum bulls of bell and zero for the mass lapse risk. 
For level two, the expense reserve was used for all of them as it gave the best match. As can be seen on the two graphs that are shown here, both of them actually perform relatively well. Both are within 5% margin of the true risk margin most of the time. And the level one is actually bloody close to being a very good estimate of the risk margin all the time. Although those little dots on the bottom representing outliers are a little bit of an issue that we'll go through now. So if we look a bit deeper of when this method works and when it doesn't, it works well and gives the best fit for policies with lower ages and low duration force. This is better for the company because this is ultimately where most of your policies lie in a portfolio, in lower durations and low, lower ages, as older people tend to take out less loans. It also lets a better fit for shorter term products, which we can sort of expect is the less we have to project, the more accurate we're gonna be. Where it falls apart, so all those dots on the bottom of the graph are mainly policyholders and older ages, which is 45, 55, and in the last two years of a longer term product, mainly the five years and the six year product. These aren't generally very common cases seen in reality, so it can still be used as a method. In summary for the credit life, the level one actually gives a good approximation of the risk margin and can be used in practice. Level two is not actually that bad either and can be a good estimate of where you are at. Both are also accurate when you want them to be accurate, which is important. And overall, it's hard to unfold these simplifications and a better method can't really be proposed for them. Now going on to the problem child. So for whole life assurances, for the level one driver, we use the present value of premium of death outgo to model mortality risk the expense reserve to model the expense risk, the present value of premiums to model the lapse down as well as life catastrophe risk, and the min of bell and zero for the mass lapse risk. For level two, we use the present value of premiums to model the total SCR. So overall, we can see we've got an issue with underestimation of results. And it's quite clear to see that level one does very little to help the issue. So both of them give actually quite bad results. And also it's interesting to note that very similar drivers to what was used for the credit life products ended up being used for the, risk, for the whole of life insurance products. So if we look a little bit deeper into the whole life insurance results, it doesn't really work well anywhere. The ages that give the best results is often older ages and higher durations and force. Due to the lapse rates that are often seen in these sort of products, it's very rare to see people in these categories. And they thus contain very little policies on most insurers' books. When it falls apart is younger ages, which is where most of your book lies, as well as when you have higher escalation rates for policies. And that ultimately just comes to down to how you've designed your product. So in summary, both level one and level two don't lead to good estimations of the risk margin. And both are worse when you don't want them to be bad. Thus, we need a better solution to provide for the whole life assurance results, which is what Peter's gonna go through now. Right, for the next few minutes, I'm gonna show you what we discovered when we were analyzing the results for the annuities and whole life assurances and the proposed solution that we think this led to. 
primary objective of our proposal is to find a better estimate for the future SCR. You can use those estimates to come up with a better risk margin. Within the taxonomy of uh, the hierarchy of simplifications, this would be a level two simplification because we're proposing that you calculate the entire SCR as one. If you have a composite book, so you have annuities and you have whole of life and you have term, then you co you're probably gonna need to take this as inspiration and adapt it for your particular line and work with it more as a level one where you go and you do something better for your annuity book and you do something better for your whole of life book. The work that we've done here, just looking at how those future SCRs play out or how they can be projected, it has other uses when you're considering preparation of business cases, when you're doing pricing work, putting together business plans, doing embedded value calculations, and some of us doing the IFRS 17 work, looking at risk adjustments and CSMs and, 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 and planning on using some sort of projected capital me methodology for calculating our unit of measure. So it all started off with us looking at this graph. What this graph shows us is the, for, for an annuity policy, the SCR runoff in blue and the best estimate liability runoff in red. All, you know, these are runoff profiles, so everything is shown relative to its starting value. And when we looked at it first, it just it didn't really tell us that much, let's be honest. Um, it just said to us, the bell runs off faster, faster than the SCR, and so as a result, you end up with this underestimate that we've seen and that Nakara explained to us for, uh, for the annuities. So you know, you've got something you're going, right, doesn't really tell me much. You start to play around with it. So I asked Ross to start plotting some things for us. And what I asked him to plot was show me how the ratio of best estimate over SCR really does change over time, which he plotted in blue. And then think about that, how that driver formula works, where you're essentially assuming that that ratio remains constant and plot it in red. And this is what he got. So clearly he'd done something wrong, so I asked him to do it again. But as I have come to learn and realize, he doesn't get much wrong, um, and this was the right picture. And it was quite astounding. Because what we were looking at was near as be damned a straight line relationship. And that for me was quite surprising. Certainly wasn't what I was expecting. We looked at the same thing for the whole of life solution. Here the driver wasn't the bell, here the driver was the present value of premiums, as Nakara mentioned. And okay, so here it's not a perfectly straight line relationship, but if you, you know, if you fit a straight line to it, with an, you know, an increasing straight line, it's an awful lot better than the base assumption, which again lies in red at the bottom of that graph. You know, assuming a constant relationship doesn't tie up to what the data is showing us. But now what I've got are two pretty much straight lines, and this, you know, just looking at this allowed us to say, well, I think we can do better. And that little thing that we considered to be better 
is the proposed solution that we'll put forward to you today for your consideration. So our approach, our proposal, calculate your SCR at two points. You've got your stream of drivers, you know what your projected best estimate liabilities are. Work out the ratio at those two points. So work out the ratio of, SC, of Bell over SCR at the two points. Fit a straight line, use that straight line and your drivers to estimate your future SCR values. Very simple. We think it actually has quite some power. And just to work through a very, very simple example. So in this, I've gone and in the first table, I calculate what is my SCR and what is my bell at my, at my current balance sheet date. I've got to do that anyway. And then I calculate it a few months into the future. So in our case, no, 15 years. Then go and fit the line, SCR of bell equals MX plus C. And then with that, I can then take my vector of known future bells, apply this linear relationship, and come up with a future vector of SCRs. Take those SCRs, discount, risk margin, and that's the, you know, and, and that is what we believe to be a very simple solution that we think provides some, high, some, some slightly better quality estimates. Now, just to warn you, this thing doesn't work perfectly, not by any stretch of the imagination. As soon as we start looking at annuities that had guarantee periods in them, you don't get a nice straight line. So what we're showing here is in blue, again, the ratio for the actual calculations of the bell over SCR. So it's, you know, it's not a straight line, but at least fitting a straight line and, and fitting something to it is going to give you a better estimate, I believe, than that simple horizontal line at the bottom. So how good an answer does it give you? Well, we took it, compared it for the annuities and compared it for the whole of life assurance, and looked at what are the errors so our estimate versus an actual calculation. For the annuities, pretty good job. We've got a bunch of outliers there, which mostly relate to very old policyholders. And for a very old policyholders, somebody age 95, when you suddenly start to project what things look like 15 years in the future, you end up with some craziness. So if you're going to apply this in reality, you'd, you, know, you need to do something to make sure that your very old customers, that you're doing something proper for them. For the whole of life assurance, again, it's not a perfect solution, but it's pretty good. You get a slight overestimation. My nature is to be more on the conservative side than on the aggressive side, but you get something which works reasonably well in most circumstances. So, where does that leave us? Risk margins are necessary. The calculation is computationally expensive. And you can estimate the true value of the risk margin using simplifications. Those simplifications 
generally underestimate the risk margin for the annuities. They're pretty good for credit life. They underestimate the risk margin for whole of life. What we've done is we've taken a restricted set of policies. We haven't looked at joint life. We haven't looked at a bunch of other things. We've confirmed that Bell is a bad driver. And by general reasoning, one can get to that, especially when you have something which starts with a negative Bell and goes to a positive Bell. It's never going to end well. We found that there's a reasonably linear relationship in that SCR over driver when you're using Bell for the annuities and present value of premiums for the whole of life assurance. And we've used that relationship to calculate future SCRs to give you a better risk margin. And that's all we want to offer you today. So I hope that that's something helpful. Opportunity to take questions, discussions. Um, for these guys who've done um, a lot of the work, certainly last year, and then this year we rebuilt the entire thing. If you have other things you'd like them to consider, if there are other areas that are worth exploring, if you've done something in your company which you know, might give us something different, we'd love to hear that from you. Thank you very much. Um, thank you to our presenters. Um, so the good thing about finishing early is that we get to have plenty of time for questions. Um, so basically, if you have a question, just raise your hand. I'm sure there'll be someone with a microphone who'll come to you and take the question. Thank you guys for your presentation. It's uh, Colin Dudkevich here, Peter. Um, I promise I'll give you the first question. Um, just a, a quick thought uh, for your reaction and possible further research. Did you think, or could you think about what reinsurance would do to your results? So uh, I guess off the top of my head, uh, proportional reinsurance you can imagine should go through proportionally and should therefore work if you're doing a linear simplification. Um, individual surplus type reinsurance where you're capping your, your biggest claims, probably not so linear. Uh, and probably most interesting, interestingly, if you have some sort of non-proportional reinsurance uh, that is designed for SCR uh, effect, uh, probably completely screws your results. Uh, any thoughts on that? I think the last point uh, is very true. So if you design something to mess with the system, it's probably going to mess with the system. Um, in terms of, yeah, and in terms of your expectation of how proportional would work, yes, I'd agree wholeheartedly. Uh, in terms of how an individual non-proportional arrangement would work. I would think that it would behave very similarly, just you would have, you'd have similar results to changing your profit assumption, essentially. Um, it is something that it's probably worth having a look at. Um, my, you know, my gut feel is you're gonna end up with the same, directionally the same issues after reinsurance, but it's something where it's probably worth having a look at. So thank you for the suggestion. Um, on sensitivities, I saw you tested uh, a 1,000 percent increase in expenses, if, if I saw correct. So I just want to understand the rationale of using such a big uh, increase in sensitivity. Is it perhaps you've got uh, other operations in uh, Turkey, Venezuela, or Zimbabwe? Um, an answer to that really, that was 
trying to get something out of the sensitivity results. Um, moving it up, we originally did it up 10% and it did absolutely nothing to results. So we really just looked at sort of a completely different product that would have had a very expensive running cost to try and maintain it to see what would happen. And even under that 1,000% shock, very little actually happened, which tells us that the expenses don't actually play a particularly major role in what's being presented here. That answers your question. And just um, a further point on that. We had had the opportunity to have um, an experienced actuary who I respect review the work. And it was the one area where he highlighted as the base assumption that maybe that was a little racy. So we had two choices. We could either go and rerun the entire model, um, or we could do a sensitivity that showed a much higher starting, a much higher expense assumption. Um, I'm fundamentally lazy, so we chose the second option. Uh, but just to add to that point as well, we got all our assumptions based on research done by the FSB itself. So that that four rand fifty per month assumption was taken directly from studies done. So it's not a wholly um, incorrect assumption to make at the outsets. Hi, Peter, Nico van Gogh here. Um, uh, I, I want to start with saying thanks for a presentation that contains some formulas. That's quite nice, especially on the life area. And even more exciting was hearing that there are at least some senior actuaries left that you respect. Um, <laughs> to get to the, the real question, it sounded that you might actually have the information available to do another quite useful piece. The fact that this is currently a level two approximation, but you were checking the quality of it suggests that you might actually have the detail available at risk type level. Is the relationship reasonably constant across risk types or do you end up having to fit a, a line? Does a line still work per risk type? Just because I think there's value in actually seeing the SERs into the future by risk type for risk management purposes. Uh, thank you, Nico. Um, you're not on the list. Um, <laughs> so that's a very good question. Um, and, and it is something where don't know the answer off the top of my head. certainly haven't looked at it. Um, there are two things which can happen from here. One, uh, the guys can put it in the backlog and hopefully have a look at it. The other is, and we need to find the right way of doing this, and I think that this is something as ASSA we need to, uh, and as actuaries we need to solve in general. We would like to take all of the results and the model and everything that we produced, so it was written in R, um, and make this available so that people can play with it themselves. Um, it, it is something where we're not, we're not really sure how to do that in a, sort of a method that works well, so if anyone has any suggestions on that, we'd, be, we'd love to hear from you afterwards. Um, but, but I think from a, you know, you're right from a risk management perspective, that is something that is worth understanding how this plays out at an individual level. And especially when you start looking at complex organizations who have multiple product lines, multiple risks to, to deal with, um, it, it allows you to start to synthesize a solution that works company-wide. So I can, I can definitely see the value in that. Thank you. Uh, any other questions? Uh, hi, uh, Robert from Old Mutual. Thank you very much for the presentation. Um, so as you might be aware, there's a circular reference between the calculation of the SUR and the base balance sheet. 
So did you use an iterative approach in calculating your risk margin? And if not, did you consider the potential overstatement of the risk margin due to that? Thanks. Short answer, uh, aware of it. Um, no, we haven't taken it into consideration. Um, and it is something we're looking at how much that iterative approach can reduce the risk margin um, and that may in and of itself be a nice little piece to do. Uh, so, yeah, so I, th I think the conclusion that I'd go to straight away is as a result of that iterative approach, your base risk margin can reduce, which means that the gaps and the errors that we're showing would be smaller, which I think is where, is where you're ultimately heading with that. So it does give us, some, yeah, it does give us regulators, actuaries, some comfort that... Maybe the situation is, isn't quite as bad, but not being someone who's in an area that's uh, using annuities anymore, uh, I'm not sure how much of a gap we actually get moving from, the, from a uh, you know, iteration one to iteration ultimate. Um, it seems like um, there isn't any other questions. So um, with that note, I think I'll just close the session and uh, thank you very much for your time and enjoy the rest of your day.